Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a returning guest. Uh, his name is Logan Christopher. He is the head of Lost Empire Herbs. And uh, just a quick shout out for Lost Empire. I'm a customer of theirs. And um, as far as I've seen from the order from them, that uh, the products are really high quality. And I really like his stuff and his, his ethic. We had spoken, uh, I don't know, a few months ago, and I, I received periodic emails from Logan. And one of them really caught my attention. It was about snake oil, the history of it. And I wanted to interview him about it because it's, I mean, I don't know of anyone that really discusses the topic. They may, you know, call someone a snake oil salesman, but there's a whole lot of interesting history to it. So, uh, Logan, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Richard. Glad to be back about this fun topic. Well, tell me, how did this uh, come into your mind about snake oil and what led to you researching uh, the info you had for the article? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I cannot say for sure. I think I had heard some things from a, a couple of different people. And uh, the fact was we were looking for April Fool's joke uh, for Lost Empire Herbs. So we created this history of snake oil like as a product as if we were selling snake oil liniment. The interesting thing is when I started to dig into it, it's like, oh, this stuff would actually quite probably work. It's not what everyone says it is. So digging into that history just was a, a very useful thing. And it's it's a great case study of how, you know, something in our culture, like that term, snake oil salesman, doesn't actually mean what people think it should mean. It, it's kind of interesting how the history went one way versus the facts that are there. Yeah. And I mean, you know, people use the anti-venom, people study the venom of different animals. So why is it so crazy that uh, you would have snake oil or oil from various animals? I guess you know, it's not that big of an intellectual leap, I would think. Uh, that's the thing. So people all across time, all across human history have used different herbs as well as like animals for all 
everything they could possibly need, right? Uh, the the real history of Snake Oil, at least where I could uh, pick it up, was that it, it became a thing here in the U.S. when we brought over a bunch of Chinese people to work on the railroads. And those Chinese people, they brought the herbs, you know, the stuff they used as medicine with them, one of which was a snake oil liniment. And this was specifically the original, from what I could gather, was made by using the uh, Chinese water snake. And this was a high fat, high oil snake. And they would use this and rub it into their bodies so that they would have less pain, less joint angst, which as you can imagine, if you're working on the railroad, probably 16, 20 hour days, whatever they were doing there, basically slaves, that this really helped them with that. So that's how really this this reputation for snake oil started in, in a positive way. Yeah. Have you ever been able to uh, get a Chinese water snake and try to make your own <laughs> snake oil? Or is that so, really difficult? Yeah, so there's the thing. After I had done all this research, we're like, well, let's let's see if we can actually source this. And unfortunately, uh, I was not able to. Could find s- snake oils, but it was not this specific type of snake. And just kind of based on that, and it's like, oh, would we even be able to import this into the country? Because uh, understandably, with regulation, there's some issues around animal parts, especially. Uh, so I have not pursued it further at this point, but I could not find the specific Chinese water snake. Do you know if anyone in China is doing this still? Or is that you know, too difficult to find out? When I dug into this, and this was a, a few years back, I, I could not get a, a clear answer on it. And I think part of the thing is like what they referred to as the Chinese water snake back then didn't necessarily have like the the Latin, the, the species name. There could be some different guesses as far as what that kind of official snake was, or if indeed they used a whole bunch of different snakes for this. Yeah, I guess you'd have to speak to some uh, elderly Chinese people in the U.S. and see if like their parents or grandparents used it and you probably have to spend quite a bit of time tracking it down, I guess. It certainly is possible. And it is also possible that other snakes would uh, have similar sort of benefits, that it wouldn't be only this one kind of snake. So one of the interesting things was someone that did actually look into this the Chinese water snake compared to other snakes has a higher amount of the omega-3 fatty acids, most notably EPA. And an interesting thing about that that I did not know previously was EPA absorbs through the skin. It's transdermal. Uh, So rubbing this on the skin in the joints would actually allow that oil to get into the body. And anyone that knows anything about fish oils and uh, omega-3 fatty acids, we know that these things are anti-inflammatory. So there's actually like a biological plausibility for why this snake oil would have those benefits. Now, so uh, one of the interesting things there is that that Chinese water snake, it being a water snake, the reason that fish oils have this fish oil, higher amounts of the omega-3 fatty acid, is one of the things about it is that it's insulating. It doesn't freeze in water as well. So by the snake being in water versus being a land snake, it's going to have a higher component of this and thus actually work better for this, for uh, joint pain and arthritis and that sort of thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This uh, water snake would be in the same environment as fish would. So, yeah. Yeah. So feasibly, if if it is specifically the the omega-3 fatty acids that are having this effect, you could possibly take some fish oil, open up some capsules and rub that on your body and see if there's any sort of uh, anti-inflammatory effect that way that can help with joint pain. I haven't run that this experiment yet, but it is a, a possible thing that could work. And, you know, how much oil do you need for that to actually have an effect? That's a whole other question, but it is uh, certainly an interesting thought experiment. Yeah, I wonder what it would do to people that go swimming if you rub this all over your body and you swam what would it do for you i wonder if it would insulate you in cold water and be able to swim longer interesting idea it's certainly possible i I wonder how Uh, much is actually needed in order for it to have that kind of effect but yeah 
Oh, okay. Do you know how the snake oil was gotten from the snake? Would they just chop them up and boil them, or do you know how it was prepared? Yeah, basically that you uh, chop open the snake, you throw it into water, the oil will separate, float up to the surface, and you can skin it off from uh, what I'm aware of. There probably are some other methods, but that seemed like a, a simple one that could definitely be done back then. Yeah, that's interesting. So when you learned about this and you wrote about it, is that it? You know, are you going to take nope. it any further or does this inform you about ideas for you to come up with new product? Well, so there's more to the story. And just as far as my herb company, we haven't gone a whole lot into the whole like topical or liniment realm. There's plenty of other herbal suppliers that do that. And maybe at some point we will, but haven't really. But the, there's more to the uh, snake oil story that I can continue if you want me to move on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So how did it first start being used? I guess it was just used by the Chinese working on the railroad. And then how did it enter? How did it become a saying? How did a snake oil right. salesman arrive? So there's a, a few steps towards that. So yeah, the, the Chinese people were using this and basically uh, white people or other people would uh, notice that they were using this. They'd ask about it. They'd try it for themselves and they'd have great effects. But the, the problem was, you know, getting this Chinese water snake. So other people would begin using snakes that were all over the, the U.S. instead. And one of the snakes that very available here at the time was the, the rattlesnake. So as it turns out, as I was saying, the, the land snakes aren't going to have nearly as much of these omega-3 fatty acids, but they may still have some effects. And, you know, the biological plausibility is that it is the those omega-3 fatty acids. But who knows? There could be something else inside the snake oil composition that could be helping with this as well. So anyway, people within the U.S. started to make snake oil liniments using rattlesnakes. And, you know, once again, those may or may not have worked. But uh, what really kind of kicked this into the whole snake oil thing was a, a guy named Clark Stanley. He was the prototypical snake oil salesman, and he wanted to go around selling snake oil. Here's the thing about his snake oil. It didn't actually contain snakes at all. He, it was a mm. bunch of other ingredients that he was throwing together and labeling it calling it snake oil, because once again, the snake oil actually had a reputation of being something that worked. And so this was back the turn of the century, the FDA got founded, they ended up finding Clark Stanley. And it was like some tiny amount of money that would amount to only like a, a few hundred dollars in today's dollars. So this guy was going around selling snake oil that wasn't really snake oil, he gets fined. And that's really where it began to get entered into the uh, public lexicon. It got, you know, Tom Sawyer, it's in the books and movies and all kinds of other things. So that's where we arrived with this idea of the, the traveling salesman who goes around selling these quack medicines. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. But if we look at what actually happened, snake oil actually worked, and then people kind of use that name to sell some fraudulent stuff. So snake oil should refer to 
improperly labeled product, not something that doesn't work in the first place. So he was the first one to essentially get in trouble. And then it kind of grew into its own legend from there. And then it was applied. Yeah. And so one of the interesting thing was, uh, in addition to this looking at the omega-3 fatty acid, I actually went through PubMed. I searched the literature to see how much evidence for or against does snake oil actually work. And most of the things, like you go to PubMed and you search for snake oil, predominantly what you're finding is people comparing it using this idea of snake oil being something that is, you know, how we use it in the, the, the popular phrase, something that doesn't work, something that's fraudulent. But there was a few studies on snakes and most of these were really preliminary. They're looking like, like boa constrictor fat, finding some anti-inflammatory properties. So there really isn't actually science disproving that snake oil works. That's kind of an important thing because often people get confused with science. A lack of evidence is not the same as evidence of lack. So say more about that. Where else have you seen that that's a problem? Well, so the FDA, we'll, we'll bring it forward to today. They they just approved an Alzheimer's medication, Adoheim, put out by Biogenics, I believe is the company. And so their normal approval process involves uh, two trials that have to find, you know, evidence that the thing worked. So here's what's interesting about this. They have, the FDA has an advisory panel that looks at this scientific evidence. And if everything is going as it should, then uh, these people would either say, yes, this, the evidence for this drug looks good, or no, the evidence for this drug does not look good. And hopefully the FDA would work according to that. In this case, there's 11 panel uh, advisory 11 member advisory panel for the FDA. They looked at these two trials. The trials had actually been stopped short because the primary outcome of the trial showed that this drug did not work for Alzheimer's. That's what the trials showed. 11 of them said that this was the thing. However, Biogen then went back, took one of the studies, just one of them, and was able to basically look at the data in a certain way that showed the secondary outcome of a surrogate marker, specifically having to do with the amyloid plaque uh, that is associated with Alzheimer's, not necessarily causative of it, that it had some effect on this, even though it didn't actually improve the outcomes of any of the patients. And so they went back to the FDA with this and the advisory panel, 10 of the 11 members said, no, this is not sufficient data. One panel member said he was uncertain. The FDA still approved this drug, despite what the panel members said. And three of them at this point, possibly more, this was three of them last week had resigned in protest over the FDA's decision. This drug has was approved off of a single trial that showed a biological end marker improved without any difference to the patients. And this drug will cost $56,000 a year for treatment. So it's like yeah. saying I, I took a drug and my cholesterol went down from you know 200 to 180, but physically nothing else happened to me. I'm not any right. different at all. And yet, okay, well, it's still efficacious. Yeah. So that that has to do with the surrogate end markers, and that actually has been shown in some uh, research. There's some saying that these statins are working, but there's other research saying like while they reduce cholesterol, people aren't dying any less. So there there's definitely some discrepancies there as as well. And this has to do with our reduction frame trying to find one thing, which in certain cases, absolutely it can work. If we find one thing and it absolutely is causative of some downstream effects or some symptoms, some disease, then yeah, we can treat that. But if we're not looking at the complex systems, that is biology, uh, we're very often wrong using these surrogate end markers. And actually, 
a bunch of the drugs that are approved in cancer and treating cancer uh, show this. A lot of them are approved based off the surrogate end markers and are shown in later research not to be efficacious in extending the lives of cancer patients at all. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what is the legacy of snake oil? What has it done to the medical industry? And I know we've gotten a bit off topic, but like, again, what do you see as the legacy of snake oil? What has it done? Oh, yeah. So it's definitely interesting to think about. I really like to look at the history of things and often where you can find something where we went off track with this idea. So here we had Chinese people that were using something that they'd probably used for hundreds, if not thousands of years, the actual oil from the snake. This got kind of polluted. It got fraudulent based off this uh, Clark Stanley guy and what he did and that that entered into the lexicon. And as modern medicine was coming out, that really saw itself as the scientific way of doing things. And science is often mixed together with technology. Obviously, there's overlap between the two, but just because something is technological doesn't mean it is scientific. So with this, they, they began to see like, oh, no, we know how to do everything right. And anything that was done the old way can't possibly be right. And this goes back to the idea of the uh, lack of evidence or evidence of lack. So we can poo-poo all these things, call them snake oil. We can say like, oh, all herbs or homeopathy, all this stuff is snake oil, right? Without actually looking at the evidence that might be there. Or actually saying like a, a true scientific opinion would be to say like, we don't have evidence one way or the other. But if you are coming from a, a priori assumption that this is how the world works, that that thing can't possibly work, then it doesn't matter whether the science is there or not for you. You already have your beliefs in place. And unfortunately, this happens a lot in science and medicine. Yeah, I recently interviewed a guy where he said, um, I don't know, let me see if I can get this right. He said, lack of a drug does not make you sick. So right. meaning if you take a drug, all it really does is at best, it's going to cover up symptoms. It's not going to cure you. And again, lack of taking a drug doesn't mean that you're you're ill. It's kind of a yeah. strange way to put it, but it makes sense. But, um, yeah, definitely. If you compare this to, say, vitamins or minerals, right, where a deficiency of one of these can undoubtedly make you sick. You know, with vitamin D, we have rickets with... Uh, vitamin B3, we have uh, pellagra, all, all kinds of different things where we can show that this this is a problem. And although those are those are those specific and lin kind of linear cause and effect, right? Uh, if you don't have enough vitamin D, you can have rickets. If you don't have enough iodine, you can get a goiter. That's very specific. But what most people are suffering now is is more chronic insufficiencies of these things where, you know, it's because you don't quite have enough of these 10 different vitamins and or minerals, and you have overexposure of these different toxicities, that this in you kind of emerges as an autoimmune disorder or cancer or whatever else. And again, th this speaks to the broader picture of complex biology that really is behind health. Yeah, it's a strange paradigm if you think about it. You know, supplements, they're, they're not considered medicine. They're relegated to this alternative category. And yet mm -hmm. what they're supposed to do is reduce deficiencies or eliminate them. But drugs, again, it's not a normal thing you'd have in your body. And it's used to, I guess, suppress symptoms and change what's going on with you. But there's no talk of supplementation. And the long-term use of drugs probably causes a downtrending or an uptrending of all kinds of biomarkers like metformin. You know, my wife took it for a while and she wasn't feeling well. And I read up on it and it said, oh, it depletes your B12 at least. Yep. So I had her supplement with B12 and then she felt better. 
And I tell my doctor and he goes, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, thanks buddy. <laughs> thanks for saying, you know. So I just wonder what the long-term effect of people taking all these prescription drugs is on, you know, their hormones and enzymes and their other biomarkers. Well, we're witnessing it, right? The rise of uh, chronic disease and everything. It's important to know that initially, like most drugs come from plants and herbs in the first place. Then oftentimes, one that we, we find one constituent that we isolate out thinking that that does everything. So once again, it goes to this reductive module, model of the world, and you know, we don't need everything else, then, you know, we, we can't just do this because it's a natural molecule. So let's tweak it in some sort of way. Uh, and typically this is done for patenting reasons, right? Because then the company can produce this one molecule and no one else can do it for a, a limited amount of time. And with that, that means you can make a whole lot of profit on top of it. So this whole model of looking at the world is one, it's it's reductive, but also it's really focusing on the, the money that is behind it. So we, we don't want to look at even old medications that have been around a long time. That's certainly a problem going on right now, but also anything in the natural world, because it doesn't fit this paradigm that has a lot of money, has a lot of power that continues to prop itself up uh, even though there are many deficiencies in this model of the world as well. Well, since you deal with uh, herbs and supplements a lot, what I mean, in general, what have you noticed with people that take supplements? Are there any trends or things you could point to? Or, you know, are supplements, I would guess they're a lot more subtle than drugs. And maybe mm -hmm. people are used to like a big hammer, like boom, to try yep. to you know, change this condition or effect. Like, like, what have you noticed? What are some of the generalities that you've seen with people taking supplements? Well, first of all, not all supplements are created equal. Uh, so there are many out there that aren't worth anything. And there, there's ones that can be great. And of course, there's a difference between herbs versus, you know, vitamins and minerals and all, all these different things. So one of the ways I like to look at it is if we see things on a spectrum, on, on one side, we have food, on the other side, we have drugs. And in the middle here, so food would be the, the standard food that you, you eat, uh, which we also see problems with, with soil depletion, the, the chemicals we use and all, all that sort of stuff. Uh, on the opposite spectrum, you have that single isolated component, often uh, chemically tweaked for patenting reasons, that is going to drive a single thing in the body, which is going to have these other complications, deplete minerals and that sort of thing, like you talked about. In the middle, we can see things like uh, superfoods. We can see uh, herbs. We can see isolated nutrients or extracts that are still coming from food in the first place. And this is a scale because as you move away from food towards drugs, you have these things in between. But the even the herbs, right, if you get isolate a single component from an herb and highly concentrate it, it's becoming more drug-like in its effect. But still, if it is more natural, it's generally not going to have quite the same kind of impact as a drug will. So the, the average person out there is swinging wildly from uh, one extreme to the other, where they're eating food that is, you know, loaded up on pesticides, insecticides, that is having these chronic effects and does not have much in the way of micronutrients in there. It certainly has enough of the macronutrients and calories to keep people alive, but not necessarily the, the micronutrients that are keeping them uh, really healthy. And they're taking drugs to support the, the deficiencies that are there. So they're swinging from one extreme to another, whereas here we want to go with the, the middle path. The golden mean. We we work more in the the middle of it. So organic foods, which are going to have much more of these micronutrients, have less of a toxicity load. Uh, we're using supplements like herbs, uh, like some other things, in order to modulate and keep things at a much healthier level. And this way, we don't need to go to those wild extremes.
Yeah, I've seen this with, um, let's say, cancer drugs like tamoxifen. I guess you can, you know, there's ways to get um, more of the original version and it has not just one compound, but like 14 different ones. And I wonder, I mean, I don't even know how you would study this, but if you take, let's say, a plant compound and it has hundreds of other compounds in it, how do we know how they act and how it helps them? You know? that, that's the deficiency of the reductive model of science. Like there's no way to analyze even doing science well is incredibly expensive and time consuming. So there, there's a re incentive for isolating this one thing out and seeing what it does. You can't do that for a hundred different components and then see that the synergies between these hundred different components. Because if you think one plus one, but then one plus one plus one, just the amount of things there are in even like a hundred different components in, let's say, an herb, then the there's so much going on, right? So we can do science where we're testing a whole herb extract, right? And the effects that have on people, but uh, that's one of the deficiencies of this reductive model and really seeing kind of linear cause and effect and short timeframes, it becomes hard to really uh, analyze this stuff super well. So I love science. Science is a great lens to look at the world and we have to recognize that it is not the only model, nor is it necessarily always the best because it has these inbuilt deficiencies that make it incomplete at best and oftentimes flawed because it is missing the forest for the trees. Yeah, and you mentioned, I know in some articles, what's called scientism. And then on this mm -hmm. podcast so far, you mentioned something is technological, but not necessarily science. Can you talk a little bit more about those two terms? Yeah. So let's start with technological, not necessarily scientific. Uh, I think a good example of this is birth outcomes in the USA. So in the USA, we're the most technologically advanced society ever, right? Some other countries are definitely up near us as well, but we, we use good machinery. We do all this stuff for babies being born. However, the US has consistently ranked the worst birth outcomes, this means babies dying, all kinds of stuff, of any industrialized nation. How is it that we can have the highest, best technology, but the actual science showing health, health outcomes, these are inverse of each other? How can that be? It's because technology does not necessarily mean that something is scientifically healthy. So yeah, we can throw 50,000 ultrasounds at you. We can schedule a cesarean C-section. We can do all these things. And the baby is not necessarily better off because of that, right? So we're taking our technology and just thinking we know better than biology, than nature has adapted us, right? Uh, and of course, this, this does not mean that there aren't life-saving procedures right now. You know, obviously, uh, birth outcomes compared to many years ago are overall better off. But once again, we can look at those other countries that use this technology. They just use it a little bit less so, and they have far better health outcomes. So just because we can throw technology at a problem does not at all mean that we should. If we actually look at the science of the health behind things, we're going to see that less technology and actually more natural very often is better. And we can see this kind of across the board, all the advances in uh, agriculture, using science, pesticides, Roundup, all that's coming out in court cases now, just how bad that stuff is, and that it doesn't actually really increase yields. It's, it's going to do so in the very short term, but long term, it is causing bigger problems to the environment, to the ecology, uh, to the growing of food, the, the rise of super weeds, which is kind of like antibiotic resistance. So all these things, we can see these same problems across a wide range of things. So this kind of brings up scientism 
different people define this differently, but it is really kind of dogmatic belief in science where it becomes its own sort of religion. So believing that because something is technological, it has to be better. Believing that, you know, we have these advanced drugs, so herbs can't possibly do anything. It's not worth even looking at. These are really person that has a worldview, has a set of beliefs and values that is really dogmatic at its core. It's fundamentalist at its core. So they use this hardcore skepticism, which is skepticism is useful in science. But if you get to a point where you are saying, I wouldn't believe that even if it were true, then you have really approached a religious belief. This is where we become uh, in the realm of scientism. Yeah, well, it makes sense. Well, very yeah. good. What's the best way for people to uh, find more about you? And uh, where can they go to look up Lost Empire Herbs? Just Google it or what's the website? You can Google it, but uh, lostempireherbs.com. Simple as that. If anyone wants to reach out to me, you can find me at logan at lostempireherbs.com. We have all kinds of videos, articles, books, tons of stuff there in addition to the different herbs. So if you like these ideas, there's plenty more to explore at the website there. Hi, Logan. Well, thank you for coming back. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.